0: You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas
1: Project. Welcome back. This is Rodolfo Rivas and this is my podcast. My guest is Colette Vanderven, founder and director of Tulip, a Geneva based consulting firm. Colette is an international lawyer with expertise in trade and development. In her work, she advises governments and international organizations on leveraging legal and regulatory frameworks to promote inclusive and green development. Colette holds a Juris Doctor from the Harvard Law School and Master in Public Policy from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a Bachelor of Arts from Middlebury College. In our conversation, she talks about how she got interested in impactful change to better the living standards of others. At first, this was in the direction of becoming a medical doctor, but soon after it moved into trade and inclusive and green development. As she went from one professional experience to another, she did it systematically towards a very clear goal in mind, helping others. She founded and served as the director for Sidley Austin's pro bono program, the Trade for Development Initiative. All this led her to create Tulip, where she spends most of her time. Although Tulip is just a few years old, it keeps growing and doing impactful work being almost a synthesis of all the work Colette has has been doing all along. Lastly, Colette tells us about her passion for helping younger generations discover their path, something she will be doing this semester as she teaches at the Graduate Institute. It was a pleasure talking to Colette. Please enjoy our conversation. Please let us know by liking, subscribing, and or reviewing if you enjoyed this conversation. You can also spread the word by telling your friends or even your enemies about us. The more, the merrier. The Rodolfo Rivas project is available on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here belong to the individuals sharing them, and do not necessarily represent the views of of their employers. Hello. Good morning, Colette. I'm. I'm really glad that we finally managed to do this. Thank you very much.
0: Me too. Thanks so much, uh, Rodolfo, for <laughs> keeping reaching out to me and uh, for inviting me to your podcast. Uh,
1: well, you've had like a pretty interesting career, and I want to hear all about it. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Like you were, you were born where? Where?
0: Uh, in the Netherlands.
1: In the Netherlands. And uh, when you were growing up there, like, did you imagine that you wanted to be like an international lawyer, or how did it all come?
0: Um, no, actually, um, I never wanted to be a lawyer. It was never something that I dreamed of when I was a kid um, to become. Um, I actually wanted to be a doctor, a doctor, uh, a medical doctor. Ah,
1: so me. I see the connection. So. Uh Between what you're doing now and what you hoped for. (laughs) Really?
0: (laughs) So that's what I was thinking about um, when I was in liberal arts. And also, at the time, I was really interested in human rights. So, you know, aligned with the uh, doctor's, uh, you know, obsession. um, I thought, well, perhaps if I'm not going to become a doctor, I may uh, spend my time working on human rights frameworks, so human rights law and things like that. So um, I was studying... um, uh, um, transitional justice and different types of transitional justice initiatives uh, that had been adopted in, um, you know, South Africa after apartheid or in Rwanda after the genocide, uh, in Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge, and I was really interested in kind of understanding how societies move from those uh, major atrocities and genocides to situations where um, they're rebuilding um, a um, a society where um, individuals are living together, um, you know one next to another, irrespective of the role they played in the past and so that became very much my focus when I was at at Middlebury where I went for undergrad Um, and uh, so I thought well if I want to pursue this, I have to become a lawyer because most of these principles and frameworks, they are embedded within international law. Uh, So that's when I thought perhaps I should go to law school. but international so. trade was nowhere near to that decision. Or, yeah.
1: yeah, it's usually not something that comes like... It comes usually later in everyone's career when I've spoken to trade lawyers. Yes, I think
0: very few people think when they're, you know, five years old, I don't dream of becoming a trade litigator. Yeah.
1: And this, when you were living in Cambodia, was before law school?
0: Uh, yeah, it was a year before law school, yeah. So, um, when I graduated from, uh, from the liberal arts uh, school, I uh, went to Cambodia for a year to work for the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. Yeah. It's a hybrid court, uh, UN-backed, uh, but located in Cambodia. Um, yeah, was, I'm really, really glad that I had that experience prior to my law school journey um, because it enabled me to um, have some practical experiences to bring to the classroom. Um, and it also opened my mind. And that's actually Cambodia, even though I went there to work in a human rights uh, tribunal, um, Cambodia is the experience that got me interested in trade and investment.
1: (laughs) Oh. Yeah. <laughs> How? What was that connection? Um, right.
0: <laughs> so, um, so the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, uh, for which I was working, um, essentially what uh, was there to try five surviving perpetrators of the Khmer Rouge genocide, right, from the nineteen seventies. Um, and as I was working there, I increasingly got disillusioned. Um, you know, while I very much believe there's a role for uh, courts uh, to, um, to to generate uh, justice uh, post-conflict, um, I was. Uh, increasingly looking at the amounts of money that was being spent uh, to support this uh, endeavor um, and there were a number of other things to which I didn't have questions and one of them was um, this tribunal uh, this was what in 2010 and this tribunal uh, sought to resolve or to um, to try perpetrators for crimes that happened at the time more than three decades ago um, while um, a lot of the problems in, in the Cambodian society were very real and present and um, they weren't as much to the past especially for the new generation and Mm. hadn't been um, alive when these crimes happened so um, I became friends with some Cambodians and um, there was all the unemployment. There were the issues related to, you know, what do you do if you are a woman? You grow up in the countryside. Um, your only option, basically, in terms of employment, is either you take over the rice paddy field work from your family, um, or you move to Phnom Penh and you uh, try to find a job as a as a waitress. Um, you often end up in the uh, the sex industry, which is really vibrant there. Um, there's very little opportunities. Um, and I then, um, as I kind of started to. Uh, be more interested in understanding the culture and and what was happening. Um, I met with a labor activist who uh, was very vocal about labor rights, uh, especially for women, uh, in um, some of those uh, you know factories. And he invited me to come along. And so I got increasingly interested in uh, opportunities for those women to work in these factories because, in their eyes, landing a factory job. So Cambodia has a lot of textile industry. Yeah. They don't have their own industry, but they've got a lot of foreign direct investment coming in, which creates jobs where women uh, sew, uh, you know, stitch different clothing and things like that for export mostly. And um, the women working there, um, you know, they, uh, for them, this was a really great job because it enabled them to more, make more money compared to other jobs they could uh, they could get. And they would then send remittances to their families, most often in the rural areas. Um, but when I went there... Um, and I became friends with one woman as well, one Cambodian garment worker, uh, and I went to the dormitories and everything. It just, it, it I, I couldn't get that picture out of my mind that this is considered um, being lucky, right? Having that job, that this is considered progress, that cr- these types of jobs created by globalization You know, it it did something to me just seeing that that was considered a positive and it got me to thinking, well, what, what is the role of trade and investment and globalization in generating jobs, in generating opportunities? Um, What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Can this look differently? Are there better ways to do it? Um, So that is kind of, you know, while I was at the court and I started branching out a little bit, that's how I started thinking about these questions. And at the time I was, um, because I hadn't studied any of this, I was just kind of going into it, um, you know, from someone who didn't know anything about it, and I looked at things, I think, still quite naively, um, and I, um, I was thinking about it very much perhaps from, you know, unidimensional um, and then when I went to law school I decided to further study this issue but that's kind of where everything started for me. on But, trade.
1: but, but it's, it's good that you like mentioned this because I think that sometimes when we're dealing with some of these issues in trade we forget that actually we do it because of that like to find jobs and to create jobs for for everyone for people who are perhaps not as as blessed as others so a job changes our lives and changes the lives of their communities and their families across uh, across many across many even generations, but I think that's something that sometimes we forget about that. So it's good that you this was your way into to trade. And I feel that you haven't really forgotten about that. It's still <laughs> something that it's like within you.
0: Well, I, I hope so. That's my that's my wish because I think ultimately it's I mean the day to day sometimes takes over, right? We all have deadlines and and pressure and um, things that need to happen on the job. And sometimes I tell myself. Take a moment to take a break and remember why you decided to do this, right? Because I think if we lose that connection, if we lose that emotional connection to the reason why we got into international law uh, or into the jobs that we have, I think that's when things go south. And I do think, I mean, just kind of on a on a tangent here, but I guess being in Geneva makes that sometimes very difficult Um, of course
1: I always say that because we live in a bubble here
0: we do Mm -hmm. and it's also a very comfortable life I mean this is a beautiful place Um, we barely see any um, misery poverty anything around us the city is clean there is a beautiful lake and we've got an international diplomatic community um, where um, you know we go to receptions and cocktail parties and talk about poverty and trade and, and development um, and, and sip our wines and and how much of that is actually having an impact on, say, the, the woman I met who works for this garment factory back in Cambodia. Um, there's a lot of different, it's a very long causation chain, right? So, I mean, I think that is something that I found quite challenging sometimes being in Geneva, that, you know, how can we make sure that we don't just feel good about the work we do because we enjoy it and we think somewhere down the line it will trickle down, but can we do a better job as international community here in Geneva to make sure that the work that we engage in actually has an impact um, and actually has an effect? So that is something I struggle with. Um, I don't have the answer to it, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, at a minimum, um, try to the best I can to not lose that emotional
1: connection. But but this, uh, I think this came after. When you were in law school, you were just like soaking in and learning anything, everything that had to do with... At that point, it was economic law, economic international law that you were interested in, like, fully?
0: Uh, yes, but I, um, so I went, uh, I did a joint degree, so um, I did a JD from Harvard Law, and I did a Master's in Public Policy from the Kennedy School, um, and uh, if you do a JD, you have a, like, the first year, you can't choose what you do, right? It's yeah. basically all fixed curriculum, so, and it's American, right? So, uh, even though my interests had gradually um, started to develop into uh, trade and, and economic law, um, I had to study everything um related to american legal systems and actually so that was my first year um because when, when you do a joint degree the first year you do one of the schools entirely the second year you do the other school oh. and then the last two years you mix it um so uh my first year was law school and it was so different from anything that i'd been thinking about and um, when i was in cambodia but it was really i think a blessing um to kind of get my mind off things because working on genocide issues for a year is quite tough um,
1: I, I imagine it also drains you like uh, emotionally and uh, physically maybe even. yeah. It
0: does. Um, and I think, uh, so I was working for the victims unit when I was there, um, which involved reading a lot of victims' testimony um, to check whether they could be uh, accepted as civil parties to this, these court proceedings. And so you read a lot about what's happened to these people, and it's just awful. Um, so there was a time when I came out of Cambodia that I had to move away a little bit from mm. the whole genocide focus because I... Uh, yeah, it had gotten to me, um, and so the the first year at law school was really good in that regard because it was all about civil procedure and contracts and uh, criminal law. I mean, that wasn't um, perhaps as far removed from some of these atrocities, but it was kind of just really getting an introduction into the American legal system and how to um, start thinking like a lawyer. So that was that, that was quite interesting in that regard. Um, and then I um, we had one elective in the first year, and for that I chose international trade. Um, Knowing very little about it, barely even knowing exactly what to expect. Yeah. Um, but that's when I got my introduction uh, in international trade law. I still use that textbook, even though it's very outdated, when I need to wrap my head around a new issue in trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I started thinking, this is really interesting. Um, maybe I should look into this more.
1: And how did you juggle these two, these joint degrees? Like how, like how was it? Like. Like uh, you were thinking about these issues, so you saw like, oh, so I see how the legal aspect fits in and I see how like the policy aspects in, but practically how did you juggle both of them?
0: (laughs) Uh, it's a challenge um, but it's 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 doable so the first two years were basically just you know one year oh, at one school no, no. <laughs> another year at the other school um, that was doable the one what made that difficult was social life because you made all these friends in one school and they then all go and take classes together in that same school while you're gonna be on the other side of the town um, making new friends and you know whole, like getting acquainted to a whole new system so um, there was a lot of you know going back and forth between law school and the Kennedy School mm. sometimes I don't know five six times a day for getting like friends and things and lectures um, but the last two years um, yeah I mean it's it's you gotta juggle it I mean, you gotta make sure your schedule fits you also had a number of requirements to fulfill that are different for the joint degree compared to the um the study at programs individually and one of them was a thesis that you had to write um, that had to have a legal and policy component so um, it was very busy Um, but you find a way you know you always do if there's something that you're passionate about um, you find a way to do it you become efficient with your time um, and you start getting a pretty good sense about you know of what is required for what study for what class for what degree and you you manage it accordingly so and I think the longer you do it the better you get at it Yeah. Um, yeah and the thesis was a great opportunity because it was um, a requirement in the program that gave gave us the opportunity to really delve deeper into a subject matter and approach it not just from a legal angle, but also from a policy angle. So that's when I chose to focus on um, the role of um, trade preferences uh, in um, building industrialization in a number of different countries, which was inspired in part by what I saw in Cambodia. So it kind of gave me a really great opportunity to apply some of the lessons I've learned and to um, study that further from an academic angle.
1: So this was a thesis that has to do with both degrees? Like it, yeah, it was a joint yeah. degree
0: thesis, exactly. so, ah, so
1: yeah. So this <laughs> is where you connected both. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. And it was a really great opportunity because it kind of, that's when it's kind of the beginning, really, of, of some of the thinking I've been doing subsequently on the trade regimes, the, you know, other international frameworks, and then development, and how they can all be connected, and what the implications are of signing on to some of these trades, not signing on to it, um you know the, like looking. It enabled me to to start exploring perhaps with some less orthodox approaches to things. And I had some really good um, mentorship, especially from Professor Lawrence at the Kennedy School and Mark Wu from the law school, um, mm-hmm. who really helped me shape my thinking.
1: Now that you are talking about it, like it seems like everything in in your career has like a a through line where everything like makes sense. But when you were actually doing it, did it seem like that way or was it just? Uh, now it's just Hans said it's 2020 uh, but
0: no it always seemed I always felt very distinct like very strongly that I was that that, what I was doing say the well education wise that it was all building towards something right because I think especially when you're young and passionate and impatient um, you want to do you want to have an activity or make a difference at that moment right you want to do it then Um, but then I guess there is always a bit of a tension between the heart and the emotional side and then there the the realistic side of things in the mind right so for me um these activities while they weren't all planned like that and I could have found out very differently as well but they somehow I, I tried to to translate each opportunity I got into um a concrete thought of what that means for what I wanted to do and where I thought there would be um uh uh, space to uh, to push the envelope a little bit. So, um, And of course there are times where you don't see it, right? And there's times where um, you don't really know what the next step would be on that path. And I think that uh, especially happens once you're done with, in my case, law school, right? You take the bar, you're done with all these very kind of linear requirements that up to that point it was very clear what path you should take if you wanted to be a lawyer, right? Um, and once you're rolling out on the other end of that system, all of a sudden it's up to you then how to decide what would be your first real job. And I think that is where, at least if I think back about conversations I had with my classmates as well, where a lot of us kind of started to feel really quite lost um, at points, at times. Um, And because there you have to make the choice, do you go into private practice, uh, do you go into the public sector? What about your law school debt? right? So this is when things become quite real. Um, and um, well, as you know, I ended up um, going into the private sector for some time. Um, that wasn't exactly how I had envisioned my first job to go when I started law school. Um, so it was a very rational choice I made. And I'm very glad that I made it. Um, but those are decisions where, um, you know, you got to kind of see each building block as um, as, as um, contributing or having a different function into developing, helping you develop the skill set, the connections, the mindset that you need to ultimately uh, do what you, what you like to do.
1: And then after, after this first job, after law school, then how did you make your way to Geneva? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so um, I actually got hired first in Sidley, uh, D.C., in Washington, ah, okay. D.C., yeah, uh, I did my summer there um, and learned a lot. I had a Had a really good time. Um, and you
1: were working in trade.
0: Yeah, I was. So um, at Sidley, um The trade practice hires separate from the rest of the firm. Um, and if you do, uh, if you go to uh, American law schools, um, there's a whole a very streamlined firm recruitment process set up. And um, before you start your permanent job, the summer before that—well, not even before, but the two summers before, really—you have a summer associate position where, um, it, which gives an opportunity for um, the employer to test your work and for the for mm-hmm, you yeah, to see if to you say. if you want to work there. So um, I did that, um, and in my junior year, and um, I'd been offered a position uh, to come back there. It was—I did all my work was in trade, so it was mostly all oh, trade and investment actually, because the group at Sidley's combined. Um, So I worked on some investment disputes, investor state disputes, I did some um, trade remedies uh, work um, and then uh, a little bit on WTO disputes that they were working on. Um, And when I was offered a job I had to make a personal choice because I'd been in the U.S. at this point for eight years. Um, My family is still in the Netherlands, was still in the Netherlands at the time as well and I thought if I take this job. I will really defect and become American um, because my entire network is in the US my way of thinking has been very much shaped by the American culture and, um, you know, is that what I want? That was kind of a question I I had to ask myself and um, the other um, point that I was thinking about was that uh, the WTO is in Geneva, if I want to be a trade lawyer, um, it may may make more sense to be in Geneva, so for these and some other considerations I had asked for a transfer um, and then um, eventually ended up here.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, all of the decisions that you make are pretty well thought out. <laughs> you don't have to—I mean, I guess that that's the case for everyone. But I, like you telling me this story, it sounds like you really, like, thought hard about it and you made the the right decision at the time, which ultimately has proven to be like the right decision.
0: <laughs> well, you never know, right? Because we don't have a counterfactual to life. So, you know, I sometimes wonder. Right? I stayed in the U.S where would my life be right now right yeah. like where, where professionally um, personally you don't know so I think that's also what makes life a bit scary and beautiful at the same time that yeah, that's true. you know we, we make the most out of the paths we choose the decisions we make the mistakes we make um, but ultimately we can't really know if we did the right thing right yeah. Um, so yeah I think I mean what I try to do is just um, you know really kind of take the opportunity each time I make a decision, make the most out of it, um, build on that, and then um, take it to the next step.
1: And when you were working in these cases and in the law firm, is this when you were thinking, what you mentioned earlier, that you were thinking about, like, oh, maybe the the work that I'm doing doesn't have the direct impact with the connection that I had, like, when I was in Cambodia, in the job creation, for to help, like, a specific person? Was this, like, something that you were struggling? and? Did, was this the reason what uh, eventually led to to limp?
0: Um, yeah I um, the work at the law firm um, I'm very grateful for that experience because it taught me so much um, and I could never do what I'm doing now without that and I also had a chance to work with great individuals um, and so it was for me a really good decision for that to, to have done that um, I, I did um, I did think sometimes about whether focusing on dispute settlement as such was uh, the most effective way um, because ultimately um, we seek to avoid disputes, right? Um, that shouldn't be the focus of the system. Yeah. And being um, well, having a job where that is most of what you do uh, made me wonder sometimes if there could be better uh, or more direct ways to utilize the frameworks to have an impact. Um, and so that is um, gradually what started me to kind of think a little bit about um, can there be other ways? Can there be other approaches? Can there be approaches that look beyond dispute settlement or beyond um, uh, conforming to WTO law uh, that look more at strategic, strategically leveraging international frameworks to achieving sustainable development outcomes? So that was a little bit um, the uh, the thinking that I was doing. Um, when I was at Sidley, um, I, uh, I I did get a great opportunity to continue to also work in a more direct way um, because we have, uh, it's a great pro bono program uh, at Sidley. It's called the Emerging Enterprises Pro bono program. Um, that was founded by um, Scott Anderson, who I worked with very closely. And um, basically, under that program, um, you can represent small businesses in developing countries with their legal needs. So this can be advice on uh, getting products into a new expert market or transactional advice or you know, anything that they would need. So I was very busy in that program. Um, so it enabled me, and that's actually also why I chose Sidley, um, uh, in part because of that program, um, which gave me a chance to also work on some more on the ground issues, and those experience further develop my thinking on that as well, and what the role of the law can be in um, directly impacting uh, development on the ground. But yeah, so kind of all these thoughts um, ultimately um, made me uh, think about perhaps I want to do something that is a little bit more focused on uh, what is happening on the ground, what is happening domestically, how these frameworks can be brought down, and how governments can um, can really seek to make the most out of them. Uh, so that is uh, that was also a gap that I noticed that existed. So gradually, then I thought perhaps this is something that I I want to do and want to work towards. Um, yeah. So.
1: Yeah, because I think that uh, I think the whole system is geared towards disputes, uh, and there is this gap that you clearly identified, and also because of your interest and the connection that you had. But then, how did you? You already had this and you already had the experience working in a law firm and also the experience working directly with someone through the Pro Bono program. Like how did you how did you envision what you wanted to do? Like what was it that you wanted to do and how did you go about it?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I think there's never a fixed moment where one knows what it is that one wants to do. Um, So this is a continuously evolving idea. It's evolving as we speak. Um, But for me, what it was, was that um, uh, I wanted to have a a space where I could use my um, expertise as a lawyer in the legal field um, to work towards sustainable development uh, outcomes. And when I looked around, I didn't really find a space where I thought I could do that. There's some places that focus on development, but not per se on the law. And there are other places that focus on the law, but not per se on development. And so um, I thought there was that gap, right? Um, And um, the way I set it up was um, focusing on, at the time, uh, where I thought the gap was and where I thought there could be um, uh, benefit uh, you know, to be brought um, from the legal, uh, the legal perspectives to some of these development projects. Um. I made some decisions. You always do. Um, you know, we all have more than one idea, and I'm sure you <laughs> know yeah. better than most people. Um, so you've got to get pragmatic about it as well. You've, you know, you've got to just fix on, focus on one idea or maybe, you know, one and a half and then build it around it um, and then make some decisions about what is it that you focus on, what is it that you won't focus on, but that changes and evolves, right? And I think especially when you, when, so Tulip, um, my, my business, it's a, it's a consulting company, um, and um, It basically focuses on um, providing um, policy advice to uh, governments and international organizations on uh, sustainable development-related issues, right? So this can really vary from um, looking into the implications for a developing country uh, vis-a-vis their existing legal framework of joining, say, the Joint Statement Initiative negotiations on e-commerce at the Mm -hmm. WTO, or it can be advice on helping a country uh, embed their new industrial policy framework within emerging best practices of the 21st century, right? So um, it really kind of is quite broad. And when I started it, it was, I wanted to make it broad because I wanted to develop expertise in a lot of different areas at the same time. Because I think there's a lot of cross-cutting lessons that can be learned between e-commerce and yeah. environmental work and labor law and free trade agreements and a multilateral system and right there, there's a lot of movement in ideas um, that can be I think utilized to make um, to inform other parts of this so so yeah the way I set it up was was in part um, targeted and in part pragmatic um, and so I thought if I am a new consulting firm I'm a boutique consulting firm um, I should be open to also take work that perhaps may not have been initially aligned with what I wanted if it comes my way right? so I've been very pragmatic about it um, so far um, but as things evolve and as I get different clients and as the world is changing um, you know COVID-19 for example um, the business um evolves with that um, yeah. quite organically
1: yeah and um all these are interests that you had and these are they don't exist in a vacuum because as you mentioned this is a, a business that you have like you also had like all the entrepreneurship uh, and building your own business that is daunting in itself like how do you do because you have to do that part and you also have to do the actual work that you're talking about how do you balance both of them
0: yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess I'll add one more thing to that, which is well, that... Um, no, no, but you're absolutely right, um, that I also... Um, I uh, had the Sidley job as well, so actually um, what helped me also quite a bit when um, I started Tulip was um, that Sidley said to me, listen, um, we're really interested in this kind of work you're doing and we would like for you to set up a pro bono program, um, you know, in some of these areas as well. So that also, um, in the one hand, uh, well, created our task, but also made it a lot easier for me to develop Tulip on the site, because it gave me a bit of security as well, so uh, I just wanted to mention that part as well. But yeah, there's a lot to juggle. As you're saying, you've got to always make sure your pipeline is filled, so today I need to know what I'm doing in January, yeah. right, so that is essentially the timeline. Um, and at the same time, you've got to make sure that the work you have um, is, um, is, is being produced and is high quality work, because I think the moment one starts compromising on quality, um, there's no point of having a consulting firm, right? That is the single most important thing. Um, so, how do I juggle all that? Um, well, <laughs> you know, you try to be efficient. Um, you, uh, you sometimes, um, depending on the project, I, um, I hire different people to help me out on uh, on different assignments. Um, so that works. That helps quite a bit. Um, and at the same time, um, the practice development angle. Uh, almost works organically once you've had um, a number of clients that you've worked with um, that are happy with your work. Word of um, mouth. Yes, yeah. there's a lot of word of mouth. It's especially a benefit from having a firm in Geneva. Um, people know you. Um, when a project comes up, they call you. So I uh, most of my work I get because people reach out to me directly because they've heard of me or they know me and they think that my expertise, uh, the experience of Tulip, could be well suited for the for the project. So um, there is uh, there is that side of course. Sometimes um, I spend time writing um, uh, tendering, I you know to respond to a procurement process for especially for government work. Um, it's a lot of procurement like that, which takes time. Um, but you manage it, um, you know, and it's a lot easier once you've set it up. Once you've got the legal structure in place, the website is up. Um, you've got your accounting system in place. Uh, you've got all your contracts in place. Um, that you know having that kind of framework makes it a lot easier to then. Keep uh keep keep going. So the first year was quite tough, but now all of that is in place, and um, it's a lot easier these days to do it.
1: And uh, Tulip is is mainly you, but you also have like a small team, no? Yeah. And then also the others that you hire a doc for the specific matter.
0: Exactly. So um, I also work with a team. So I hire different individuals depending on the work that Tulip has, um, and depending on uh, their qualifications. Um, so that's a process that's uh, that's very. Um, It's ad hoc. It's ongoing. Um, Yeah. So, um, I also have the benefit of great advisors. Um, I have a wonderful advisory board that um, I speak with quite a bit that. um, Yeah.
1: So, there's like real direct contact on issues. Yes. Exactly.
0: So, um, I have the benefit of working a lot with um, Patrick Lowe, um, the former chief economist to the WTO, um, who's been extremely helpful as well as uh, some other great individuals. yeah, on my board. So that's been really great.
1: And um, what are the the next? Uh, how do you see the next five years of Tulip? Because you you obviously are doing great work now, but you also want to increase uh, the impact that you make across more. Absolutely. Hey, what, what is the uh, the plan?
0: <laughs> I have so many plans. <laughs> So um yeah no the, the idea is to, to to scale it up right um because the first two years it's been an operation for two years and How
1: many two years? only two years yeah. have, like in my mind it has been like for, uh, for many years for well,
0: <laughs> thank you I appreciate that. <laughs> I think the branding strategy is working right? <laughs> um, so no it's been an operation for two years and especially um, basically the pandemic hit about six months after I set it up so um, last year and a year uh, last year year and a half I've been um, I focused on finding a way to kind of move the organization into a more pandemic friendly uh, you know, format because prior to that I was on a plane every week um, mm-hmm. and so I had to adjust it to the adjusting circumstances and that's happened quite well so far um, and now when I'm focusing on for the next five years, is to really scale it up and build it out. So, um, which means um, looking at uh, you know um, certain types of contracts that will allow me to do that. Um, there is, um, in terms of the substantive direction, um, a lot is happening these days in the field of trade and the environment. Um, in the field of uh, questioning um, the role of um, well, the focus on economic growth as. Uh, the sole um, uh, objective of development, right? There's a lot of um, movement happening in the way one approaches development these days especially with the sustainable development goals and things like that. So, um there is a challenge here in translating some of these aspirations into underground frameworks and underground policies. And that is uh, work that Tulip has been doing uh, in different formats. Um, And that work comes out especially also in the context of the trade and sustainable development angle. Um, So I have a lot of work these days um, um, where um, there's a need for new innovative thinking on what does this mean that we've got this kind of um, shifting consensus that we want more than growth, we want more than just increased trade volumes. What does that mean for how you design your trade agreements concretely? What does it mean that you want to protect biodiversity uh, for say your um, your soy supply chain? What does it mean for your trade agreements? So there's a lot of issues um, and a lot of interest these days from developed countries to developing countries to different international organizations that are that want to find ways to develop frameworks that suit the needs and interests of the 21st century. Um, and so that is uh, work that I've been doing quite a bit with Tulip. Um, and I'm seeing more and more work emerging there. So my, um, my, my my wish for Tulip for the next five years is to um, become a player in... Uh, helping to develop some of the innovative cutting-edge frameworks that could be, uh, um, that would be necessary for the world as um, sustainable development is something that we strive to uh, to work towards.
1: Well, um, I, now that we're here in the Graduate Institute, I saw re- recently your commencement speech, which was really good. Well, thank <laughs> Congratulations. you. Congratulations. <laughs> but I think also that shows your commitment and interest in, sharing some of this experience, and now you're going to be teaching here at the Graduate Institute. Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, uh, so yeah, I'll be be teaching in the fall um, with my former boss at Sidley, Scott Anderson, and we'll be uh, teaching the uh, Trade Lab Clinic. Um, So basically, that's the class where um, students are uh, exposed to um, developing uh, papers and presentations based on real-life uh, problems and issues uh, for real-life clients, mm-hmm. and it's predominantly to be um, well. It, it the focuses on really getting students ready for um, you know having jobs that require a large number of skill sets, and at the same time introducing them to the complexities of some of these questions as we discussed. Um, I'm extremely uh, excited for this opportunity because I think I mean t- training the next generation is one of the if not the most important uh, thing we can do mm-hmm. if we want to have an impact. Um, and so uh, that's something I'm really that's something that's very important to me um, I've always really enjoyed teaching when I did it for government officials before the pandemic now a little bit over Zoom but it's quite different um, but I'm really pleased to have this opportunity to work with tomorrow's uh, leaders um, so uh, and, and to learn from them and to um, and to, you know, to, to share what I have learned so far um, and to make it very much a, um, a conversation so yeah that's something I'm very much looking forward <laughs> to and I'm sure that you know, hopefully they'll learn something from me, but I'm sure I'll learn so much from them. Yes. Um, and I'll take these ideas and use those in turn to further develop the work at TULIP and uh, everything
1: else. So, well, yeah. uh, Colette, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, quite inspiring uh, hearing your your journey and the plan for the next five, ten years. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me, Rodolfo. And this has been uh, really great. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. This was the Hualolfo
1: Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it?